Grace, mercy, and peace to you be from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I've always been fascinated by the character of Mary Magdalene. In fact, I have such a deep fondness for this woman of faith that I named my oldest daughter after her, uh, Magdalena Elliot. But I'd like to take you through Mary Magdalene's journey on that Easter. See, by the time Easter morning came, Mary was really a broken woman. She had very little left in her heart. She had pinned all of her hopes on this Jesus of Nazareth. She believed that he was the one who would redeem Israel. She believed that he was the one who made her right with her father in heaven. But she had seen what this man had received for all of his kindness and all of his love. How they had tortured him and mocked him and finally killed him. That this is what the world has to offer for anyone who's willing to make things better. Nothing but pain and sorrow and death. And so that Easter morning, Mary went to the tomb for reasons she probably didn't even fully understand. Maybe she had some loyalty to a lost dream. But Mary went determinedly with those other women to show one last kindness to this man who had been her teacher. To show one small bit of honor to him by properly anointing his body. But she got there and everything was wrong. Everything was out of place. Nothing was where it should be. And Mary immediately comes to the conclusion. Foul play was involved. And so our Easter story becomes a mystery. A mystery story and our detective is Mary. Mary is looking at the evidence and trying to put this together. So she surveys the scene. The guards are not there. They've abandoned their posts. What kind of Roman guards abandon their posts? And the seal on the tomb is broken, and the whole stone has been moved away, and there it lies empty. There is no body. And so she comes to the conclusion, grave robbery. Grave robbery was a serious crime in the ancient world. As much as people tried to scare away grave robbers with curses and whatnot, they kept doing it. There's two main motivations that Mary's weighing here. One motivation is that this is theft, that they've come to steal the valuables in the tomb. The other possibility, the other motive, would be to dishonor the body, to vandalize the tomb of one who uh, was their enemy. So Mary cries out, they have taken my Lord. I do not know where they have put him. Who's the they? That's what Mary means to find out. So Mary takes her grave-robbing hypothesis and goes to Peter and John with it. And there she says, they have taken the Lord, and I don't know where they have put him. Well, Peter and John jump into action. They race to the tomb, and there they take in additional evidence that the first scan had missed. The additional evidence was the linen. Jesus had been wrapped in linen uh, bands, and those bands now lay neatly on the slab of the tomb. Peter even notices an additional detail. The cloth that had been over Jesus' face has been neatly wrapped and folded up and placed to one side. What kind of grave robbers take the time to unwrap the body and to fold everything up neatly? As they left the tomb, John believed he had enough evidence at this point to solve the case. And perhaps you feel like you have enough evidence too. Peter was less sure, but he still went away in deep thought. Well, Mary came back to the tomb to look at the evidence some more. and She saw the same things the disciples had seen. 
the folded claws, but now something else. Two men, two young men in white clothes sitting on both sides of the slab where Jesus' body had once laid. Now this is a startling piece of evidence. Why do well-dressed young men sit in the scene of a crime of a freshly robbed grave? This just makes no sense at all. And so Mary dismisses it as a red herring. Even though they tried to comfort her, she just repeated her refrain. They have taken my Lord. I don't know where they have put him. Then she turns and she sees a stranger. A stranger walking in the garden. She starts creating hypotheses. Who could this stranger be? How could he fit into this mystery she's trying to unravel? And obviously... He had to be someone who worked there, because who else would be there at this time of the morning? So she assumed it must be the gardener who takes care of the olive grove where the tomb was. Then she thought she solved the case. Then she thought she had enough evidence. This man would have had access to the tomb. This man could have planned things in advance. This was an inside job. It was an inside job. The gardener had done it. And she's ready to make her accusation. And she says it half accusingly, but half pleadingly. Please, sir, if you took him, show me where, so that I may put him back where he belongs. Now, I want to point out this stage in the story. She had all the evidence she needed. She had all the evidence she needed, but she came to the wrong conclusion. She had first seen the empty tomb and thought that, thought that represented grave robbery. But none of the evidence matches grave robbery. Why were the soldiers scared off by mere robbers? Why was nothing of value taken if this was a theft? Or if it was meant to dishonor Jesus, why was there no public show of dishonor? No graffiti, no vandalism, the body hadn't been displayed anywhere. It didn't match up with the evidence. Then there's the evidence of the two men sitting there. Now, if Mary had looked at this with eyes of faith, she would have seen a picture. The picture here is an Old Testament picture. Two angels sitting on either side of a long slab, a slab in which innocent blood had been poured. This was the Ark of the Covenant. Because the Ark of the Covenant had a long slab roughly the size of a human body, and on top of it were two angels. And between the angels was the mercy seat, the place where the blood was thrown for the forgiveness of sins. If Mary knew what she was looking at, God was telling her everything she needed to know about what had happened here. That here, the sins of the world were atoned for. Here, the innocent blood was poured. Here, the once and for all sacrifice was made for the sins of the world. Mary had all the evidence she needed, but she wouldn't let herself believe it. She wouldn't let herself believe that such a great thing could possibly have happened. Then, she saw the one piece of evidence that certainly should have convinced her. The man himself, Jesus of Nazareth, alive and breathing, standing in front of her, that should have been open and closed evidence that Jesus had risen from the dead. And yet, she didn't believe it, because she wouldn't let herself believe it, that the doubt, the pain, had uh, torn her faith apart. And so she sees it and comes up with, crazy theories about gardeners and conspiracies. At this point, Mary had all the right evidence, but all the wrong conclusions. But it all changed with the word. Mary. 
When Mary heard her name, it all changed. And this should not have surprised us. Because Jesus said as much back in John 10. John 10 is when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. I call my sheep by name, and they hear my voice and follow me. When Mary heard the voice of her shepherd, she believed. But she knew her shepherd then. That is the moment at which she followed him. Because Jesus' word breathed life into her dead faith. Just like Jesus' word had breathed life into dead Lazarus. That Lazarus was dead and cold in his grave. And Jesus said, Lazarus, and Lazarus stood up and believed. So, when Jesus says, Mary, Mary stands up and believes. And can you even imagine the joy she experienced in that moment? That she got into complete hopelessness, thinking that her Lord was dead and buried, thinking that he would never live again, thinking that his enemies had done terrible things to his body, and suddenly realizing that he lives. He lives, and if he lives, that means that everything he promised was real. If he lives, that means that all of his talk about forgiving sins was real. It means all of his talk about making humanity right with God was real. It meant when he told Mary she was forgiven, it was real. Though in spite of all of Mary's wrong conclusions, there actually was something she got totally right. When she said that she thought the gardener had done it, she was right. The man who she thought was the gardener was the guilty party. That she had actually identified the correct grave robber. Because Jesus had plundered his own tomb. Jesus had gone into his own tomb and there had broken the seal, scared away the guards, and taken the valuables. And you know what? The Roman authorities continued to look for this notorious grave robber. In fact, ten years later, we find that this word had reached the emperor himself. Emperor Claudius heard about this infamous crime, and he issued an edict for the land of Palestine. I'd like to read you just a brief excerpt of Claudius's edict. He says, It is my pleasure that graves and tombs remain undisturbed in perpetuity for those who have made them. If, however, anyone has either demolished them, or has in any way extracted the buried, or has maliciously transferred them to other places in order to wrong them, or has broken the ceiling or the other stones, I desire that the offender be sentenced to capital punishment on the charge of violation of sepulture. That's right, capital punishment for violating a tomb. It seems a little extreme, but they knew this very notorious grave robber was on the loose in Palestine. And so they sentenced him to death if anyone had managed to catch him. But little did Claudius know, they had already caught the man. They had already arrested him. The Romans had already sentenced him to death. He had already received the full punishment of the laws of God and man. The guilty party was punished by Jesus carrying on him all the sins of the world. And now, even though they had caught him, and even though they had executed him, the grave robber was still on the loose. And I tell you, to this day, he is still at large. Not only is he at large, he has taunted the authorities by saying that he will strike again. Yes, the grave robber has promised that he will pull off the heist of all time, the greatest heist ever, that he will steal every 
body from every grave on the last day. That he is coming for you. That's right, the grave robber is coming for you. Because one day you will die. Your soul will be forcibly torn away from your flesh. And your body will lie in the dirt. And there decay. The, brave, the grave robber has promised that he will loot your tomb. That he will come to you and he will speak your name. Your name. And just like the name of Mary raised her dead face to life. Just like the name of Lazarus raised his body from the dead. When God speaks your name to you, when your Savior, your shepherd speaks your name, you will know him. Even though your ears may have turned to dust long ago, they will be made whole just so they could hear that word. And even though your limbs may have turned to dust long ago, they will be made whole so you can stand up and follow him. That you will be raised to new life, and there you will experience the joy that Mary had on that Easter day, knowing that all of it was true, and that your Savior has kept his word, that he has called you to step out of your grave and to live. And so your life begins even now. Even now, the Lord has called you to step out of your grave and to live, to stand and have faith that the grave robber has plundered his grave and will plunder yours also. Alleluia and amen.